Welcome to the official podcast for the Australian Podiatry Association. This is where we talk about issues affecting podiatrists and their patients, as well as a range of broader issues. My name is Annette. I'm the CPD manager with the Australian Podiatry Association and your host for today's episode. We're going to be exploring the assessment of children on the autism spectrum, the factors podiatrists may observe and the role that they can play in providing podiatric support and treatment to these children. And to do this, we're joined by Associate Professor Kylie Williams. It's great to have you online with us today, Kylie. Welcome. Thank you. Kylie is a podiatrist and researcher. She's an Associate Professor at Monash University, School of Primary and Allied Health Care, a Senior Researcher at Peninsula Health in Victoria, and a research fellow at Staffordshire University UK Centre for Biomechanics and Rehabilitation Technologies. Kylie also maintains a small paediatric caseload in private practice with a diverse research and education portfolio, has led or supervised research in paediatric gait, children's footwear, developmental or lower limb orthopaedic conditions and their impact on participation in allied health models of care and communication. And we're so pleased that you've been able to join us today, Kylie. And I am sad to say, day one of another lockdown in Victoria. Yeah, let's move on. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, here we are. And our thoughts go out to those in Sydney and everyone else in in Victoria who, we that awful saying, we've got this, you know, you kind of might and it's okay to not have it, but we're all in it together and we understand. Absolutely. Yes, that's true. That's true. Now, Kylie, from what I've been reading uh, and, and researching for uh, our, our interview today, some people with autism spectrum disorder or, okay, let's call, let's refer to it as ASD for yep. for the interview, uh, have a known difference, so such as a genetic condition. However, other causes are not yet fully understand and we still have much to learn about the causes of autism and the impact it has on patients. What What is ASD and does it affect children who have the condition? Does it affect their, their gross motor skills, their coordination and balance the same way? So the children that have it, are they all experiencing similar, I, I guess, um, uh, challenges with the, with the condition? Yeah, so I guess to start with Annette, I'm not an autism expert, so you are very much getting a clinician lens, an educated clinician lens who's been to loads of courses um, working with kids with um, autism spectrum disorders and you're getting the parent view, the auntie view, the family friend view, sort of all bundled up in this, this educated parent. So I think one of the things with ASD is it's it's a spectrum of developmental disability disorders, it, meaning that there's unique features to each child and that these have varied impact. They are caused by differences in the brain and just like we know that everyone's brain is incredibly different, that's why ASD is one of the, the most unique developmental disorders because there are key features that have a different impact. So some people with ASD, as you've said, we've got these known differences such as a genetic condition, 
But then there's others that we don't really know why. And I guess one of the things is we um, then look at the abilities of people with ASD, and this can really vary quite significantly. So for some people um, with ASD, they might have really, really advanced conversation skills, whereas others will be completely nonverbal. And some people with ASD need... Um, need extensive support for their activities of daily living and others can go to mainstream schools can uh, have they, they can end up with a very high functioning job they can live and work with absolutely no support so this is why why we kind of consider it as a spectrum and there's this little I guess a lot of people will have heard well we sometimes hear that um everyone's a bit on the spectrum. And while it might be technically true, it, it's actually very, very misleading because most people don't that are on the spectrum don't fall into this diagnostic criteria. And those key features are really three particular key features. And that is one around social communication interaction skills. So, so this way of, of uh, talking, interacting, Restricted re um, repetitive behaviours or interests, so a, a hyper-focus on something. And then these other characteristics, and this is kind of where podiatry, I think, falls into it. Things like delayed language, delayed movement, delayed cognition. Sometimes we, we see um, elevated anxiety, stress, worry, um, a lack of fear, or sometimes a greater fear than expected. And so... I guess um, I guess the thing is they're those key features that make the diagnosis and, and I think further on we can unpack a, a little bit around what makes the diagnosis with those key features. But mm. that's kind of where the, the how it affects children's gross motor skills in that particular other characteristics box. Mm, mm. I was going to, um, you know, talk about, or I was, you know, hoping we could talk about, um, you know, how early, you know, ASD can be diagnosed and what some of the assessments are for diagnosis. But, you know, I think I'd prefer, if it's okay, if we if we just um, maybe skip over to communication for a moment. You know, you've 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 already mentioned, um, you know, some of the um, uh, uh, key behaviours that that um, uh, you can see, obviously, in in kids on the on the spectrum as a podiatrist though um i imagine it it would pro you know provide some challenges when communicating with patients on the spectrum how do you manage that in in practice oh right good question good question um and this is where um patient-centered care becomes the most important that just be and it's it's I hate to use cliche sayings, but parent messages have given us some exceptional cliche sayings that just because you know one child with autism means you know one child with autism. That every child's ability to communicate, interact, ritualistic behaviours and repetitive patterns and um, a profile of delay is unique to that child. So then it becomes about developing uh, your rapport based on the expert and what the expert tells you. So, for example, uh, uh, 
at a new consultation if we we know a child is coming in and mum has had said that or dad has said that they have autism uh we've got a i guess a little series of questions we might consider asking the parent is do you need a social story do you need something to help socialize your child to our clinic because a child that is relaxed in our in our clinic uh will have the better outcome because we'll be able to uh do you um is there any communication aids that your child needs would it actually be easier if we did a first consultation on telehealth where the child is actually relaxed in their home environment and gets to um, hear our voice, see our face and and not have to have that added, added challenge of a new environment with new smells, new colours, new bright lights, new people, mm. big car ride, all of these other sort of stuff that make communication even, even mm. harder. Mm. Add a mask to the mix. Um, it becomes next level because um, with, with some kids, I've got a couple of photos that I will show some of my kids who particularly know me quite well. We've, we've struggled to transition with, with masks to them being able to understand my facial expressions. So I've, I've got one child in particular, we've got some photos um, and it, we did it while we were in a phase where we could distance without a mask. But he took some photos of my face when I was smiling and some photos of my face when I was frowning and some photos of my face when I was being a little bit sarcastic because that's what I do. And then we popped my mask back on, did exactly the same. And so now he he almost uses my my forehead and my eyes um, to be able to gain those, those nonverbal cues. And that's really difficult. Ooh. And he's quite high functioning and very articulate. That's not going to work for all kids. But that's, a, uh, I guess, an example of one element of individualised care that we can provide um, where, where we need to. And it, it's kind of taking a little bit of, I guess, um, learnings from our speech pathology colleagues and our OT colleagues and how they interact, particularly if you're going to have a long relationship with this family because of a foot pathology that you're going to have. And, yeah. and I guess that that's also how much do you invest in that? Is it something that you actually need to do for the future? Um, or is it something that um, if it's a one-off visit, you may not need to invest that heavily in the relationship as to as opposed to someone you, you know you're going to be seeing for a long mm, time? Mm. But for those podiatrists out there who may interact with, um, you know, a, a large number of children in their practices... Yeah. Uh, you know, just listening to you talk then, uh, an idea popped into my head that they could take a series of photographs of their faces and put the photographs up behind, you know, where they sit uh, in their consultations. And even with their masks on, the children, you know, who they're working with can actually still see their faces and, yep. and see what they look like behind the mask. So 100%. that might be an idea. Yeah. And it's something that particularly, and while this wasn't designed to be a COVID chat, um, it is something that we really learned over the last 12 months that we have groups of children, particularly in, in Melbourne, Victoria, that um, some children have never seen our faces. Yeah. Uh, they've, they've only ever seen our eyes and some of them have only ever seen our eyes be behind glasses or shields. And that is a whole new that's a whole different conversation but the the this is what i look like is actually really important for kids if you want to build that relationship having that this is what i look like this is what it looks like when i smile um is really important for trust and building that therapeutic alliance 
And I'm pretty certain there's uh, a lot of adults that are out there as well who may actually yeah. like to know what their clinician looks like as well. Yes. So behind yes. that mask. So I'm sure that the photographs might be welcome uh, by more than just the children. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Now, uh, you know, being a parent, we and both of us are parents, but we both yep. know the joy that activity and and sports, you know, can can bring to our children, you know, whether that's playing in the park, you know, whether that's, you know, going on a hike and exploring, you know, the creeks and, and waterways uh, that, that, you know, in our national parks, or it could be playing uh, a sport like, you know, soccer or, or AFL uh, or, or rugby league. Um, how does how does ASD affect a child's ability to walk or, or play or participate in a, a sports activity? Yeah, um, it's a really, I guess to answer this one, we might need to take a step back and really understand, uh, I guess the, the three levels of ASD is really important because when you talk about ASD, because it is a spectrum of disorders, they, they actually classify ASD into three levels. And level one requiring um, this this limited support. It's commonly the mildest or it used to be called high-functioning autism. They um, the, the Kids who have high-functioning or adults who have high-functioning autism might have some communication challenges. They mightn't say things at the right time. They might be a little bit of a thought of a, as a jerk um, or they mightn't be able to read the social cues that laugh at the wrong time, laugh at the wrong thing, not read someone's body language. Um, they, they often will try and make friends and they often are pretty crap at, at making friends unless they have really, really good peer groups supporting them to do that. And they can also be quite inflexible of moving um, with, with, they can be very, very rule oriented. Uh, rule orientated, which is great if that's what your sport is, but it makes free play very difficult. Free play with kids doesn't come with rules, or that the rules are highly complex. When uh, and their 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 uh, free play rules are based on social interactions between friends. Who, who's the bossy one? Who's the passive one? Who's the one that's good? Who do, when they get the ball, we let them run with it because they're really mm. good with it. Mm. Those complex things are actually very difficult for kids on all spectrum, uh, on all levels, but particularly um, for kids that are really able to move and, and play, that they're the nuances that we often don't appreciate as much. Level two and level three become these next level challenges that these are the kids that have even more extensive verbal social communication challenges right through to being totally nonverbal, unable to put a shirt on, uh, unable to toilet train. Um, they, they often have incredibly narrow interests. They often have incredibly repetitive behaviours, which make it very, very hard to function in, in particular certain situations. Um, and so then when we take that in the context of ability to play, walk, run, participate in physical activity, I guess a lot of when we talk about those things relies on this element of being brave. So if you, if you think about when you did something for the first time, how you might have practiced it before you did it, you might have failed a few times before perfecting it, you might have thought, um, oh, gee, I did that wrong, but hey, if I did 
this bit differently, I, I, I would nail it. Now, what we know with kids who sit on the spectrum, many of them have disordered sleep. Um, many of them have sensory processing challenges. Many of them um, ha- have have challenges interacting the the uh, the environment and how it it um, feels, set the sound, the sight to them. So, if you think about your braveness in trying something new. Now, think about how you would have done that brave thing if you were totally sleep-deprived for months on end, if you felt like you were wearing a sandpaper suit, um, if you felt like that you had to do it after you'd listened to rave music for five hours and it was still going on in your head. So... That's yeah. often what it's like for it's a, a lot of children mm. to perfect mm. something or to participate in sporting activity with when you've got all those things. Now, most of those can be overcome, but you need to consider if you're asking something of a child, think about what's going on in their body and brain when you're asking of, of that thing of them. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point to make. So... Working, working with, uh, you know, the kids in, in practice, what is involved in, um, I guess, a, a podiatric assessment of a child with ASD? And, you know, are there any red flags that podiatrists need to be looking out for that would require further investigation or, you know, referral on? Yeah. I guess, um, don't, don't forget the medicine in all of this. Kids with, kids with autism get, juvenile arthritis so they get red hot swollen joints it's a red flag kids who um have autism may also have cerebral palsy and so you you can't forget your normal assessment sometimes the normal assessment is very tricky so you may scrimp and save on a few things in your clinic um i guess one of the trickiest things in and this is again in my experience is understanding pain because kids with ASD are commonly not great at being able to explain it. Um, they're not often, uh, a lot of parents will tell us that they've got a really high pain threshold. It's like, well, yeah, okay, pain, pain is our, pain's a brain concept that tells us to do something differently. And if your body's not telling you to do something differently, then is it actually, should you worry about it? However, what we'll sometimes talk about is what behaviours are happening at the same time and is, do you think there's been some negative behavioural responses that are out of the ordinary for your child given their usual circumstances? So in a ch- often um, kids who sit on the spectrum, their families have quite rigid routine behaviour because that's when things work for the family. Mm-hmm. However, is there something new? Is a child having these negative behaviours like hitting or kicking or spitting? Um, are they withdrawing? Are they actually um, removing themselves from an activity they usually loved? Are they particularly clingy? The, the notion of kids um, who are on the spectrum not being affectionate is is really a misnomer because many of them Many of them aren't, but many of them are also quite quite affectionate in their own way. I guess parents are the best historians with this. They really know their kids. So what, one thing I always add more so is around behavioural change. And if they can link a trigger 
to when their child has has changed in their behaviour or they've stopped doing something that they previous love, previously loved to do or, or they're getting angry at that thing more than they used to. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm hearing a common uh, um, an, a common element here, Kylie, in our discussion, that, and that is in this instance the parent, you know, is the expert, the parent is the historian. And I'm thinking listening to the parents, being a bit of a detective, asking lots of questions, you know, digging yep. deep is is the way to get the the kind of outcomes and the results and finding the solutions that the, the pods may want to, you know, work with with the children. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It really goes back to that just shut up in the clinic. If you listen to your patient and they will tell you what's wrong with them. Yeah. Um, and, and often we do, we've got this limited time that we, that we need to get through stuff. Have you ever asked your parent, do they need more time? Can we book a double appointment for this? Uh, particularly if they're on the NDIS and they have that in their therapeutic bucket of money that they can attribute. Some of my kids will come in for 15 minutes. My clinic is a safe room. They are comfortable with it. They know what will go on. If I need to do a quick orthotic adjustment, a quick shoe check or something, we can manage 15 minutes with some kids. For others, oh, my goodness, that's never going to work. We need a good 20 minutes of calming it down. I've got a mini tramp in my room, so for some kids, we spend 20 minutes on the trampoline. Um, the, the, we, we do, and this is, to me, what personalised care is all about, and I think parents really, or I know parents really appreciate when you accommodate their needs. It's hard. It actually takes a lot of time to think through a practice like that, but it, it's doable if that is a group that, that you want to work with or have found yourself working with and things aren't going as you planned. Mm-hmm. I imagine just like you have to shift your communication methods and, uh, um, you know, uh, change for every patient, um, you know, that, that comes through your door, when you're working with a, a, a younger child uh, who may be on the spectrum, how could a podiatrist, I mean, obviously treatments, podiatric treatment options uh, that are available for, say, the need of an ithosis or, or plantar fascia, yeah. something like that, would be the same or be very similar. However, I imagine there, there would be a need to maybe alter that treatment option in some way. Maybe it's the communication side. Maybe it's a, a lengthier time in, in the treatment, uh, you know, period of time. But what would you suggest? Is there, is there a difference in the podiatric treatment options available for children with ASD or are they the same treatment options? They're just maybe you're, you're coming at them at a different, in a, in a different method, in a different way. Yeah, that you've actually nailed it. That's exactly it. There, there's nothing special. Um, mm. Some kids might need footwear. Some kids might need to be more physically active and I'd really love to talk a little bit about physical activity with this, mm-hmm. this group of kids. Um, some kids might need orthosis because of some reason. A lot of kids who who have autism, not all, but about 50% of kids who have autism also walk on their tiptoes. And while a lot of people discount it, it's actually the least of their problems. For some kids, it actually is a problem. And it might be the decision to watch and wait or it might be the decision that, you know what, 
um, we need to do something preventative now because it matters to the family and you might want to use a full-length carbon fibre plate or you might want to refer them off to an orthotist for an AFO because you often do need to be a bit aggressive if you want to treat toe walking in this population. Um, because the worst, the worst thing you can do is end up with ankle equinus and serial casting for kids who have toe walking and autism is a nightmare. And so they often go straight to surgery. So I might be a little bit more aggressive with ankle equinus, um, treatment with kids who sit on the spectrum because I really want to get a better motor pattern going for them. I really want them to learn the heel is, the heel is their friend. It really does need to touch the ground. Um, However, the other stuff, they get heel pain. They get, they, they get, they, they get everything that other kids have. They it's get verrucas. They, they, they get they get, tinea, they get, they get yeah. toenails. Yeah. And Absolutely. for some, for some, interestingly, I've got a young man at the moment who's one of my favorite, favorite patients. He wants to learn to cut his toenails. And so often we defer, um, at times I've deferred that to an OT with, hey, can you, can you teach bugalogues to cut their toenails? It's actually pretty hard at the moment. And so now I've got some great relationships with OTs that they're like, honestly, can we work on this and can you do that? And so working on some independent skills that ultimately you've got a 13, 14 year old that wants to be independent who can't cognitively cognitively think through those skills you can be someone who teaches someone to be independent Mm, yeah so fantastic that's fantastic and you mentioned earlier that you you wanted to i guess highlight the activity of Mm. of kids on the spectrum and the need for that that i guess a larger amount of activity in some instances what did you want to uh, you know mention in in regards to that yeah so i guess um I wanted to highlight that that more and more we're learning that kids who have different abilities and kids who are on the spectrum are less physically active as they get older. Um, Physical activity we know is good for bone health and heart health and prevents obesity. Um, And and physical activity is is complex. It's challenging. It's um, there's a lot of a lot of things in it that helps a child be physically active. And and I think we talked earlier about learning rules and learning behaviours, about practice and repetition. Mm, Um, Yeah, there's a lot of layers to it. It's not just the physical side. It's not just you need to go for a walk because actually if it was that easy, everyone would be physically active. But what we actually do see, and there's, there was recently published some um, studies on accelerometry data in, in children who, are, uh, who have uh, autism and uh, compared their data with adolescents. And they commonly found that the older the kids got, the less activity um, they actually performed. And some of that was really exhibited by... Uh, physical activity highly interfaced and was highly impacted by encouragement, developing a network of typically developing peers who understood and were supportive of inclusion, Um, picking the right sport for the child. If you really want one with rules, look at martial arts or look at Look at something that there isn't a lot of variation, but there's lots of repetition within it. Something like table tennis, fencing, 
Um, These are highly repetitious activities that allow a child to succeed Mm. and planning that parent activity levels, particularly male um, dads' activity levels has been shown to be a really influential factor, particularly in young boys' lives. Working with the parents around their own physical activity and how you can then incorporate that in a in a child and being creative in your recommendations because these are typically the kids that will not run around in the playground and play with their peers because they don't there's no rules to that play and mm. so instead they withdraw and and I hate to use stereotypes but they're probably in the playground going. Beyblades, talking about Minecraft and talking about train networks because yeah. that's what they know. They have it's structured and it's rule based, and they've found their people to yeah. do that with. Yeah. And so, this free play that other kids do, they get lost in that a little bit unless there's those other social drivers. Mm. Mm. Absolutely. So, <laughs> I mean, it's obviously a difficult, um, you know, uh, for, for many parents out there, it can be difficult and challenging. Um, but let's just say you are a busy parent. You, you know, you, you've got two great kids, seven and, and nine. One yep. happens to have been diagnosed at three with, with mild you know, ASD. He's seven. He's active, uh, seems happy, yet you know he has a habit of tripping over. It's not fun for him. You don't think it's anything major, but still it's a little bit concerning, okay? So what what and when and how do you speak to your podiatrist about this? So, you know, what will be, you know, what would the podiatrist be looking out for and, and, and assessing for when you come in? Um, so if we, if we look at this as a bit of a sort of a case scenario. Yep. Um, so I guess when, if I was to put myself in the parent's shoes, um, I'm obviously comparing my child with, um, who's on the spectrum, who I look at them and do so much more for them than their peer. So I'm also highly conscious of everything that they do that is not the same as their sibling. And so I'm probably going to notice things a lot more. And so I think so from from the parent is is putting yourself in the parent's shoes about um, the other is there's so much else going on with my kid. Why does he have to be the one that trips? Like I don't I don't see and he's got a bruised knee and he's got a he's got skin off and can't, can't he just can't he cop a break? And so then from the podiatrist side, I think. Um, I guess what I'd be considering the first thing is really unpacking why they think tripping is an issue because kids trip, kids do weird stuff all the time. And I don't know too many seven-year-old little boys who don't have a skin knee at least once a, a week. Um, but also, and I don't want to be too discounting of it at the same time though and, and trying to unpack or bring a parent to the actually, is it a problem or is it the problem that you're the most worried about right now because it seems like an easy fix? So kind of understanding what else is, is going on a little bit. Is a kid worried about it? Like, do they, do they actually care? And that will probably elevate my level of concern. I, I 
love listening to my parents, but at the same time, I actually am far more influenced by an older child who is worried about something versus one who who doesn't worry yeah. about something. So yeah. I guess I would still do a full assessment because I think we, we talked a little bit before about um, kids with ASD may have CP. They mm-hmm. may, there's lots of, of, of comorbidities with ASD. So I, I would still uh, try and do as much of a proper assessment um, in case there's any sneaky suspicion of anything underlying. And then I'd probably encourage um, safe movement practice in a way that in- interests the child. And sometimes uh, uh, referring to a really good exercise physiologist might be, might be great. Um, try and understand when they're falling. Um, so, is there a pattern? Is it is it in a particular type of footwear that they are fixated on? Uh, I, I don't know. I'd probably just try and sit and listen a lot and try not to over pathologize. I'm probably not the best person for tripping because I don't usually think it's a problem. Um, oh. If 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 there is a structural element, then I will try and support treatment for the structural element so kids might trip when they've got ankle equinus so does this kid toe walk getting to that is a little it's like a little windy path where we all end up at the same place but bringing the parent along in that journey and do we need to worry about it or not something very reassuring for a parent with a kid with a complex health need to be told you know what Lots of seven-year-olds do this. I can hear you're worried about that. That's often what other parents of kids who don't have ASD are also worried about. So it, it's okay to be worried about something. It doesn't mean we need to do anything about it. Mm, mm, that's a really good point. That's a really good point. And Kylie, you work with a number of young patients with ASD. What's, uh, you know... We've covered a lot of different uh, topics and, and different layers today, but what's your one piece of advice or your, I guess, your your words of wisdom to podiatrists who may also have patients on the spectrum when it comes to communication and interaction, you know, while you're working with the patient in practice? Um, oh, that's a good one. I would probably say check your bias at the door. Because and go back to that first um, cliche, just because you know one kid with autism doesn't mean you know all kids with autism. They all come with their unique, um, unique packages of fun behaviours that can be um, can be a lot of fun. And it can be a lot of hard work. Use the people around you. So sometimes if I know I've got a kid, particularly who is sitting on level two or level three, um, coming in, I, I commonly will shoot an email to their OT or physio and say, have you got any tips for me? I know you've sent me this child. What what behavioural strategies will work? I, I've got an app on my phone that can shoot a social story to the parent in five minutes. It's got photos. It's got a picture of my face. It's got a picture of my receptionist's face. It's got a picture of what it's like to enter the clinic. It's got a picture of um, what my clinic room actually looks like. Yeah. And kids who are on the spectrum, I had a speechy help me, help me put it together. Um, they're not, it's not easy. It's sorry. It is easy. They're not hard 
to do something like that and it's an app called Social Stories. Um, I guess it's about understanding what other health professionals are using and um, it's, you don't have to reinvent something. Use what other health professionals who are working with these kids day in, day out and, and adapt it to your practice. So if you find you will never be the only person seeing a kid with autism, they will have a team of people wrapped around them. They're psychologists, speech pathologists, paediatrician are the most common. They will often have an OT and they may have a physio touch base with one of them, try and get a, hey, what works? Or ask the parent, of course, ask the parent, is there anything I can do to make this visit easier? Is anyone, what do you usually do for a new consultation? And then be prepared to be flexible because just because you've had three good consultations doesn't mean that consultation would be great. Um, I often ask my parents not to do anything new, on the day when they're coming to see me because I will likely, I, a couple of my kids hate coming to see me. I don't know what it is. I think my consultations are great, but um, <laughs> they, they hate coming to see me. And so if they've had to do another thing on the day they hate, so if they've had to have a haircut or go to the dentist, please don't do it on the same day as me because it really makes, I'm often at the end of the day and so I get this very stressed child let's set the child up to succeed yep yep that's fantastic fantastic and sadly because i'm really enjoying our conversation and <laughs> learning an immense amount um it does actually wrap us up for today's episode it's been so very interesting learning more about how we all can, you know, even, you know, non-podiatrists can communicate with, with young, you know, with, with children who may have ASD. But I'm, I'm pretty certain, you know, the podiatrists that will be listening to today's episode uh, are going to take an enormous amount away and on what is obviously a complex topic with, with many layers to it. So thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Appreciate it. So, as I said, everybody, that does wrap us up for today's episode. And as always, we welcome your feedback and requests for podcast topics. Email your feedback uh, or any topics that you'd like to hear more on to uh, info at podiatry.org.au. And don't forget, check out our website, podiatry.org.au, as a source for ongoing updates on a range of topics for podiatrists. And when you can, take a look at our social media feeds at facebook.com, Australian Podiatry Association, or Twitter at apoda underscore national. In the meantime, stay safe and take care. And bye.